Um, we're going to do now what we do each Sunday. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, whatever it is, if you could turn to the passage we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, today starting at verse 18. And when you found that, if you're able, if you would stand for the reading of God's words, uh, I'll read this passage for us together. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. This is probably one of my favorite passages of all time from Matthew. I'm just going to put that in there. While he was saying these things, this is uh, all the stuff we saw last week from Jesus. He is uh, talking about the, the wedding invitation he's bringing and, and this new way of operating, this new way of connecting to God. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, from that hour, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. These were the customary uh, expressions of grief and mourning in this culture and time. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. This is God's word. Maybe seated. Let me just pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this uh, amazing passage together. Spirit of God, come now and illumine the preaching of your word. Um, you have been present already. Uh, we trust by your spirit, and we ask now that you would uh, open up every heart and mind and all ears, uh, break down every barrier to your word, um, and cause it to accomplish the good purpose in each one of us today that you want to accomplish in us. I believe you'll do that. I'm trusting you to do that. You promised that in your word, so I'm trusting in that promise. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. It was June 18th, 1940, when France had already been pounded by the German army that in the face of his nation's own darkest hour, Winston Churchill famously said this in Address to the Nation. He said, what General Wigan called the Battle of France is over, I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury of the might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a dark new age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. <clears throat> Now, no question, facing the fury of Hitler's allied army, as well as the possible end of Western civilization as we know it, was undoubtedly a, a dark hour for Churchill and, and the whole United Kingdom, of course. But to be fair, this was still 
early in the war and Britain had not yet joined forces with two of its most powerful allies, uh, United States and Russia. And so as dark as the hour was, this is why Churchill still concluded that speech by calling the people of Britain to brace themselves to their duty so that, quote, if the British Empire and its commonwealth should last a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. What about when there are no allies left to call? What about when you have, there's, there's no options left to choose? No moves to make and the dark threat still remains? Where do you turn then? Where do you turn when a nine kilometer wide asteroid is hurtling towards the earth and all attempts to divert its course have been unsuccessful? Some of you know what I mean there. Where do you turn when the pilot comes over the speaker and instructs all the passengers to brace themselves for an emergency crash landing? Where do you turn when the, the doctor says, I'm very sorry, but there's nothing more that can be done? For many, though certainly not all, the place people turn in those darkest of hours is to faith, is to God, to, to prayer, to whatever or whoever may be out there. That's, that's where they turn. Now, yes, yeah, sure, to a dyed-in-the-wool atheist, um, this is a turning to irrationality. That's an amazing ring turn, whoever has that. God bless you for that. <laughs> to a dyed-in-the-wool atheist, turning to faith in times like this is a turn to irrationality because, you know, our brains desire to make meaning of our circumstances, and when all rational kind of explanations are exhausted, we turn to irrational ones. Maybe. And yet, turning to faith in these dark hours, it's such a common experience. Like, you hear about it so much, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, and so it's, it's happened so much, we almost think, I mean, it's got to be at least statistically relevant to, to have the discussion. Why do people turn to faith? Why do they turn to God in these dark moments when the bottom falls out and there's nowhere left to turn? I, I suppose it could be turning to irrationality kind of on a mass scale. But I wonder if instead maybe the turning to God in these dark moments, the turning to the divine, isn't actually the most rational thing someone can do. When now there's no longer any sense or really any time even to put off those deeper questions of life and death and God and meaning, those questions we're all so adept at avoiding in our busy lives. Maybe now it's the most rational thing someone can do. But alongside those questions, another question I think worth asking and considering now, when, when we're not in that desperate situation where we're forced to face those other questions is this, how does a God who we've given no thought to whatsoever, and now we're just turning to, in this hour of desperation, respond. How does he respond when we come to him in these last-ditch moments of desperation? How should he respond? Well, the really cool thing is actually we see in our passage today that we're looking at from Matthew's Gospel, we see the answer to that question. 
as Jesus responds to two different people in very different hours of darkness, yet equally desperate and with nowhere left to turn. But what's interesting about the way Jesus is responding here is that not only are we shown Jesus' response to incomplete faith, we're also shown the greater prize and price of faith in Jesus. We see both of those things, Jesus' response to incomplete faith, but also the greater price and prize of faith in Jesus. So I want to look at this with you. If, you. if you've closed your Bible, would you open them again with me, the Bible app, whatever, to this passage and follow along with me, Matthew 9, starting at verse 18. As we explore this passage together and learn exactly how it is that God responds when we turn to him in our darkest hour. Okay, so let's look first of all at Jesus' response to incomplete faith. Jesus' response to incomplete faith. And, and I'm calling their, their faith, the faith of these two people we look at, I'm calling it incomplete, not because it's not genuine. It's certainly genuine. But like if you look first of all at the woman that Jesus heals there in verse 21, she's almost kind of got a superstitious faith. This idea that, that Jesus' cloak somehow has these magical healing abilities. I just need to touch the, the cloak, uh, kind of mixed in with faith in Jesus. Or consider this man who wants Jesus to heal his daughter. Given the antagonistic attitude of the religious rulers that they've demonstrated towards Jesus, we learn in the parallel accounts of this story in Mark and Luke that this man was a ruler in the synagogue. When we consider that, we've got to know a man coming to Jesus for help has got to be literally his last ditch. This is a, I'm willing to try anything at this point kind of faith in Jesus. And as to my question earlier of how God should respond to incomplete faith like this, I'm not going to answer for you, but when I think about it myself, what makes sense to me at least is that at best, Jesus should respond to these guys with, hey, thanks for coming to me. I mean, that's great. Uh, you, you barely believe I can even help you though. Tell you what, go back, go away, figure out you know, what you think, and, and when you're certain that I can actually do something to help your situation, come and ask me, glad to help. And at worst, he should deny them altogether. You haven't given me a thought until today, and now you want help when you've got nowhere left to turn? Sorry, no thanks. And yet what we see here is that both in both of these examples rather than caution rather than cursing Jesus responds instead by giving them his full attention and giving them the healing that they were seeking him for however imperfectly he does heal and I want us to look at this story just a little bit more deeply to help us understand exactly what it was that, that drove them to this place where they would be so desperate to come to Jesus in order to seek help from him but in order to do that I'm going to actually draw in a little bit from the other gospel accounts of this same passage as well to kind of flesh out the picture for us. And this is actually one of the really cool things about having four New Testament gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and not just one, because what we get is actually four different perspectives on the same story. We get to see four different people's experience of life and ministry of Jesus. And what's compelling about that is that although they bring four different perspectives, they focus on different aspects of the story, each one of them comes to the exact same conclusion. Jesus is absolutely who he said he was. Jesus is God's promised rescue. He is the king come to bring God's kingdom. So when we 
see Matthew's view compared with the others, what we see is that he kind of has brought a summary account of the story. He's kind of collected all the pieces together and bringing us the, the high points. He's not giving us every detail of the story because Matthew is focusing entirely on Jesus. He's focusing on Jesus and his response to faith and his ability to, to heal and restore his creation in, in response to faith. But Mark and Luke, in their telling of the exact same account, they, they include those things, but what they focus on a little bit more is the people who bring their faith to Jesus. They kind of give us a bit more of a picture of them as well. So for instance, in verse 18, if you look with me here, Matthew simply tells us a ruler comes to Jesus and kneels before him and asks him to raise his daughter. Okay, Jesus, and it says he goes. But what Mark tells us is that there was a little bit more to the story than that. So in Matthew chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, I'm going to read it for us, but Matthew 5, starting at verse 22, we, we read this. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them, and a great crowd followed around and thronged about him. Okay, so that tells us a few things, right? We learn, okay, once again, this man is a, a ruler in the synagogue. We learn his name is Jairus. That's great. Uh, Luke 8 actually tells us the, the age of the daughter. She's 12 years old, and he tells us that this is actually Jairus' only child. Okay, so that gives us a bit fuller picture. But what we also learn is that when this man first comes to Jesus, his daughter is actually not yet dead, at least at first. She's not yet dead, but only at the point of death. Okay, which I think actually adds a whole different urgency to the story, right? Because if, if he's coming to Jesus and his daughter has died, then the ask is, Jesus, please come and do whatever you can. But if she's about to die, if she's at the point of death, well then, all of a sudden, the ask is, is Jesus, I need you to come now. My daughter's about to die. It's this whole urgency that, that comes before this point. You can almost imagine the scene in this man's home as we don't know exactly what happened to his daughter but she's slipping further and further towards dying uh, um, doctors healers they've all come and tried to do whatever they can their efforts have failed and now there's literally nowhere left to turn no options and i imagine it's actually jairus's wife this is my own imagination it's jairus's wife not jairus that first gets the idea to go and call jesus i think she's the one that says to him listen i don't care how this looks I don't care what this means for your reputation. Our only child is about to die. Go call Jesus. Go and bring him here. I mean, so, which means when, when Jairus goes to see Jesus, he goes, but not really, you know? Because this is a career-ending move for Jairus, like for a religious ruler to publicly go and ask for help from this blaspheming miracle man seeking help from him uh, career ending move and yet Jairus knows literally he's got no moves left to make there's nowhere else to turn and so he goes and then the woman from verse 20 of our passage look there with me now Matthew simply tells us she suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years interesting to note the parallel there between her length of suffering and the age of Jairus' daughter but what Mark adds is that she'd suffered under many physicians and spent all that she had in order to receive help and yet instead of getting better, she was getting worse. 
which means there's an urgency to her need as well. For not only is her need, her physical need deteriorating, she's also now financially destitute. She's broke. She spent all that she had on these doctors who couldn't help her, and now she's getting worse. But then, haha, she hears reports that this miracle, miracle worker Jesus, he's here, and so she goes in, in search of hopefully receiving a healing herself. So that gives us this, this greater picture anyway of, of who these two people are, and I want you to see those details because what I think it's so important to see is that desperation. Desperation is the thing ultimately that's driving both of them to seek Jesus. And that although both of them come to Jesus seeking healing, the, the faith that they come with is anything but perfect, right? It's anything but fully formed. These are not people coming to Jesus with a fully established faith. I know you can do this. They're not coming with a fully formed Christology or, or like a seminary degree level of like understanding of miracles and these sort of things. They're just desperate. Jesus, my daughter's dying. Please come. The, 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 the woman, she, she won't even ask Jesus really. She just tries to sneak up behind him and grab his robe to be healed. And yet both still receive the healing that they were seeking from Jesus. And, and I need you to see that, like to really feel the, the reality of that because what you need to know and what I need to know about Jesus is that what Jesus responds to is the faith that we put in him itself, not the amount of faith that you bring to him. Not how, how perfectly formed and, and put together and complete it is. He responds to our coming. And that's actually why this passage helps us fill out a much larger picture of Jesus than we could have otherwise if we didn't have this passage because what we've been seeing now, even through the past few chapters of Matthew, is that Jesus responds to faith like the centurion in chapter 8, who's like, you don't even need to come, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And he also responds to superstitious faith that barely has an idea of who he is. Jesus responds to faith that will literally tear the roof off a house in order to get in front of him, like we saw at the beginning of chapter 9. And he responds to the faith of a synagogue ruler that would rather be anywhere else than standing there asking him for help. Because what we see consistently throughout the Bible is that it is the object of our faith that matters most, not the amount of faith. Who it is we've put our faith in, not how fully complete and formed your faith is, that matters most. For a number of pastors, for instance, over the year, refer to uh, the Red Sea crossing, the people of Israel in the book of Exodus. How, how both those with great faith, rejoicing at God's provision of deliverance, as well as those with almost no faith at all, terrified at every step that the water was going to come down and sweep them away. They both passed safely through the water because their faith was in the same person, the same object. Which means that whatever your need is today, however dark the hour you're experiencing right now in this moment you can know Jesus isn't waiting for you to have enough faith he's not waiting for your faith to be fully formed and properly computed all together enough he, he's, he's just waiting for you to come right 
Which, listen, no, that's not for a moment to say, like, just bring your need to Jesus, whatever it is, and he's going to answer exactly how and when you hope he will. No, he, he's God, not, not a genie where we rub the lamp and he answers our wishes. But it is to say, it's, it's to show us his readiness, his readiness now to, to hear your request. He's saying, come now, not when you've got enough faith or it's fully formed, come now. It also shows us his ability. We see his ability here to accomplish anything and everything you could bring to him. Even to the level of raising someone from the dead. He's showing us that there's no limit to what I can accomplish when you come to me with your need. But then along with seeing Jesus' response to incomplete faith, what I think we're also shown here is the greater price and prize of faith in Jesus. The price and prize, the greater price and prize of faith in Jesus, which might confuse you a little bit to talk about a, a price for faith in Jesus, because I didn't I just say, wait a minute, it's not, it's the object of the faith, not how much faith you bring, so why would we be talking about a price for faith? Well, let, let me show you what I mean, because I'm not referring at all to a payment for Jesus to respond to you, uh, or, or whatever need you bring to him, but rather this, the at times more challenging circumstances that Jesus calls us into in order to experience the fullness of how he wants to respond to us. One author put it to us like this. He said, you will always both give and get far more than you bargained for when you go to Jesus for something. You will always both give and get far more than you bargained for whenever you go to Jesus for something. Let me, let me show you where we see that in the passage, and then we'll just talk about what it looks like in our lives. So again, Mark's greater details. We learn here that in response to Jairus' desperate request, Jesus agrees. He says, all right, let's go. But, but just as they're heading out, as they're about to leave, all of a sudden, Jesus stops the whole train. He, he pulls over the ambulance to the side of the road, as it were, to, to help this woman with the discharge of blood, which, like, can we just acknowledge, that seems like the most foolish, irresponsible action possible? Not because Jesus is helping somebody else, but because this woman, she's suffered for 12 years. She's got a chronic condition. Jairus' daughter, her condition is critical. She could die at any moment. So clearly he's, he's chosen something. He's chosen wrong. And then, in the midst of this seemingly foolish choosing as if the situation couldn't get any worse because man just think of yourself in that moment you can almost imagine the father's panic rising at each moment that Jesus wastes on this woman with a chronic condition she suffered for 12 years she could wait for two more hours as if it couldn't get any worse Mark tells us while he was still speaking there came from the ruler's house some who said your daughter is dead she's died why trouble the teacher any further? Can you see Jairus in your, in your mind right now? It's almost as if you can see him just, just crumble under that news. Not just because his daughter is dead, but because of the futility of... of Wasting time seeking out this, this Jesus. The, the, wasting the precious few final moments he could have had with his daughter. 
chasing after this fake of a healer. I knew this was a waste of time. I knew that we couldn't trust Jesus to do this. Why did we waste time doing this? Or maybe thinking like, Man, or, or is it just because I didn't come to him with enough faith? I didn't believe enough. Oh God, am, am, is my daughter dead because of me? Uh, all these thoughts swirling in his head as he crumbles slowly into the ground. And yet, just before he crumbles all the way, Jesus reaches down and catches him. I see Jesus uh, taking hold of Jairus by the shoulders and just waiting until his eyes focus on his. And he speaks these words of resurrection to this father's shattered heart. He says, don't be afraid. Only believe. Don't be afraid. You, you can still trust me. I don't know about you, man. I, I have needed to hear Jesus say those words to me a lot over my life, over this last year. Don't be afraid, Wesley. You can, you can trust me. I know this looks wrong. I know it looks like all is lost. Will you trust me? Trust me that I've got you. And I've got a better end in mind than you could even think to ask me for. And now, okay, so this is now where Matthew's summary account kind of catches up with Mark's and Luke's. To the place where it seems now, anyways, that faith is somehow stirred in Jairus as he learns, wait, Jesus is still coming. He, he doesn't mind being troubled. He's, he's still coming to my house. And his faith is stirred to believe that Jesus can now lay his hand on his daughter and raise her up. So they go to the house. Jesus clears away the, the mourners who, who are, are laughing and mocking at him for his, she's only sleeping. He clears them out, and then Jesus takes Jairus' daughter by the hand and raises her up from death. Wow. Or think of the woman. Mark tells us that she touches Jesus' robe and instantly senses within herself that she's experienced healing. And yet, although there's people pressing all around him, Mark tells us that Jesus perceives that power has gone out from him and he stops the whole train and turns around and starts saying, who touched me? And remember, this is the, these are the circumstances that made Jesus too late to heal Jairus' daughter. Starts asking, who, who touched me? And uh, Luke tells us, he, he identifies Peter as the disciple who almost sarcastically is rebuking Jesus by saying, Master, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you ask, who touched me? What are you talking about? Everyone's touching you. But now, this woman who was actually ceremonially unclean because of her bleeding and had hoped to kind of just slip in, uh, get her healing and then slip out healed, now has to come forward with fear and trembling before this whole crowd of people and, and testify to the fullness of what Jesus has done for her. So you look at these two stories, you're beginning to see what I meant when I said that you will both give more and get more than you bargained for when you come to Jesus with something. Jairus thought all he had to endure, that the price that he'd need to pay was the time of getting to Jesus and back and maybe the social embarrassment of going to him for help at all. What Jesus called him to endure instead was losing 
everything or feeling as if he had, but to still trust him. And yet, what did he get in return? He, he thought, all I need from Jesus is just him to, to heal her. What he got instead was a resurrection. Like, infinitely great. What the woman thought that she would have to endure was nothing more than uh, the risk of possibly being found out. For a person like her who was ceremonially unclean because of her condition um, wasn't allowed to come in contact with anyone. She had to stay away from people because Law of Moses said if you are unclean at this time, you come into contact with others, you make them defile. So she's risking that. But what Jesus called her to endure was to publicly testify to her faith and what had happened. And yet, Think about this. What she received was not just restored physical body, whatever had been, she'd been struggling from, but also her reputation is now restored. As this town who would have known of her bleeding condition now hears her testify she's been healed of her disease, cleansed of her uncleanness. So much more than she bargained for, giving or getting, both of them. But like, but why, though? Why would Jesus do that? You wonder that when you read these, these stories? Why would Jesus make these people in their darkest hour who are suffering already, struggling to the point of desperation, go through, endure these much more difficult circumstances when he had the ability the whole time to just give them what they were asking for? Why would he do that? It seems vindictive, even cruel to do that. And yet I think the reason Jesus called them to experience a higher price, as we saw with both of them, is because what he wanted for them was to bless them with an infinitely greater prize than what they knew, they were, they knew to ask for. But he also wanted to grow their faith. Incomplete faith is certainly enough to come to Jesus, but he doesn't want us to stay. He doesn't want us to stay incomplete. Jesus wanted Jairus to know, I'm not a traveling miracle man who can just heal. I'm God's anointed one with the power over death itself. He wanted the woman to know, you weren't healed by touching my magical cloak. You were healed by coming to me in faith with your need. He wanted them both to see what we've been looking at over the past few weeks. I'm not the God who stays aloof or, or distant from uncleanness in order to guard my purity. I am the God who enters into your places of brokenness. I'm the God who touches the unclean places and makes it clean. But do you see, all of this was about taking their small incomplete faith and growing it, helping them to see that the greater prize was not just having their needs met, not just transforming their circumstances, but in establishing a relationship with him and who he is. A transformed relationship with him is what he also wanted to create in them. For although, yes, absolutely, it, it seemed to them that what he called them to was cruel, even reckless the entire time. Look, Jesus had an even greater plan, a greater prize, as well as a faith-building purpose in mind for them. They couldn't see it at the time, but he, he was planning and bringing about that plan the whole time. Because, yes, absolutely, the object of our faith and not the size is what matters most to God, but God is committed to growing and building faith in those in whom it exists. He wants it to grow and become more complete. 
although faith is not required in order for God to do great and miraculous things in our lives, God will at times lead us through dark hours, more challenging circumstances than we would choose for ourselves, not to punish us, but in order to complete our faith. Isn't that so often how it goes in our lives? This is just, these are just some examples. Our, we, we come to Jesus crying out for a struggle-free problem-free marriage, uh, struggle-free relationships, struggle-free friendships, whatever it is, and instead he leads us through struggles and trials together so that we'll come out of that actually with a stronger faith than we could have known otherwise than if we hadn't gone through those things. Maybe we come to Jesus asking for provision of some financial need or, or, or freedom from some chronic illness and the way Jesus responds instead is rather than just shoving a bunch of money in from us. He holds us in that place of financial need, maybe of looking for work. He sustains us, continues to be present and, and holding us through that long, dark hour of depression or the seasons of chronic pain, all so that we might have faith to believe in the good purposes that he has behind his dark providences at times. And so that we might seek the giver more than the gift. We began this morning talking about how many in their darkest hours, when, when the bottom drops out and there's nowhere left to turn, they, they turn to faith. They turn to God, to prayer. And what we've seen in our passage today is exactly how God responds when we do that. How he responds in the per person of Jesus Christ when we reach out to him, even with the smallest most incomplete of faith. And yet the temptation could be seeing that to say, okay, well, sweet. That means I can kind of just live my life whatever and when I get down to the last wire, I can reach out to Jesus, he'll, he'll respond. Great. I don't know if I'd presume on that. I think that's presumptive. I think it's also disrespectful to the offer that Jesus is giving us because what it's important to always remember is that the reason Jesus can respond to you that way, the reason that he can touch our places of uncleanness and replace it with his cleanness is because he endured a dark hour of his own. In fact, the very darkest hour possible. Jesus spoke of this hour uh, often through his earthly ministry, he's talked about it coming. At times he would say, it's not yet come. Until the night that he was betrayed and handed over to be crucified the following day, Jesus at last said these words to his disciples, the hour has come. It's here. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And Mark's gospel tells us at Jesus' crucifixion, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land. In the middle of the day, darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
You see this, this is the darkest of hours Jesus had come to endure in order to open up the way of access into the presence of God for us. That, that's what the tearing of the curtain in the temple was all about. It was about the way Jesus, through his suffering, through the darkness of his hour, made access possible, made, made relationship possible with a God who we were otherwise barred from. That's what he was accomplishing. But in order to gain that access, although Jesus was the light of the world himself, he was plunged into utter darkness for us. Plunged into the darkness of the wrath of God against our sin on our behalf. As Keller sometimes says of Jesus' cry from the cross, he says, Jesus lost the hand of the Father so that now, through faith in him, and as we saw today, only the smallest and simplest of turning in faith is required. Now, through faith in him, you and I might always find it whenever we reach for him, no matter how dark the hour. Will you reach out for his hand today? Will you reach for it? Maybe you've never reached for him before, and today, even by the simplest of turning to him in faith, you can find your greatest need, cleansing, as well as every other need that you bring fully met in him. It will cost you and also give you far more than you bargained for, but it's so worth it. Will you reach for him today? Or maybe... Maybe for a lot of you, you'd say, I, ha I have reached out. I have taken hold of his hand. And yet now, the darkness of the hour that you're currently walking through has caused you to lose it. Or at least to lose the, the sense of his grasp. Would you reach out to him again today? Remembering that he's not waiting for you to believe enough. He's not waiting for your faith in him to be fully complete before you can come to him. He, he simply just wants you to come. And I think for all of us, a powerful lesson that we can take away and to consider to just finish saying is this, is if this is what Jesus is able to accomplish in the lives of those to come to him in a desperate, last-ditch try with incomplete faith even, then how much more? How much more blessed and less burdensome will be the experience if instead of waiting to come to him when all else fails, we come to him instead and bring our need to him first. God help us to do it. As we sang this morning, so often prone to wander, are we? God, would you seal our hearts and teach us to reach for you always and bring our need to you first.